Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly look at the news agenda. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Rafe Hadelmanku, Senior Fellow and Royal Commentator, and Amy Gallagher, campaigner and lady behind Stand Up To Woke. Um, we are going to be talking about a number of issues uh, that have been in the news this week, but before we do, just would like to uh, give you a couple of notes, just like last week, of two locals events coming up. Uh, the first one is this coming Wednesday, actually, 31st of January, Wednesday 31st in Brighton. That's um, the inaugural event of, uh, of our new Brighton group. So um, please do come along if you're in Brighton or in the surrounding area. Um, best thing to do is to go to uh, locals, sorry, no, events at newcultureforum.org.uk and then we can give you the details. And the same goes for the second event, which is in Wellingborough, where there is a by-election, on the 6th of February. Tuesday, the 6th of February, uh, that's in Wellingborough. And our guest speaker there is the guy who is standing for the Reform Party, uh, Ben Habib, in this kind of quite important by-election, actually. So if you want to come to that, that's uh, Wellingborough in Northamptonshire, please again get in touch via... Um, uh, go to our, uh, or should I say, write uh, to our email uh, events at newcultureforum.org.uk. So that's two dates for your diaries there. Um, three things we're going to talk about actually today. One is uh, basically um, how we should all get on a war footing, according to one of the top brass of the British army, because uh, Russia, a war with Russia is imminent. Uh, then we're going to be looking at uh, Gen Z and uh, whether they really are uh, too uh, lazy to even get out of bed to go to an interview, which is the case according to a new study. And finally, well, they don't make them like that anymore. Uh, we're going to be looking at ads and why they are so terrible today and why they were so brilliant in the 1970s and 80s and even the 90s. Anyway, um, first of all, uh, we've got the army situation. Uh, I'll start with you, actually, if I may. This was um, Sir Patrick, now what was his name, who's basically... Sanders. Sanders. Um, and he has said that basically Britain should actually be thinking in terms of an all-out war with Russia and that we've got to change our whole attitude to Russia and to fighting basically and uh, get ourselves on a war footing it felt slightly surreal reading this well yeah well the first thing you have to acknowledge is that all generals are trying try to get more budgets from from the government it's mm -hmm. you know it's what they do he's now in the last few months of his tenure as chief of the general staff and um, he's firing some well-deserved blows against the government for the defense cuts that we've seen but also the severe recruitment crisis that exists mm -hmm. In the, in, the, in the British Army and in the armed forces more generally. I mean, they've halved their numbers in 30 years, and just in the last 20 years or so, they've gone from having 100,000 to just over 75,000. So we're at a point now where our army is the smallest it's been since the, before the Napoleonic era, mm. which for an alleged, super, or an alleged great power is, uh, is quite ridiculous. And the Americans no longer regard, regard us as a proper fighting force any longer, which is a, a remarkable thing to think about. Um, I mean, the, the, he's... Correct on one level, in the sense that we, we can't rely on America any longer to bail us out mm. of any conflicts, you know, as they have done for the last 80 years. So Europe does need to step up its game. 
Um, but of course, the real challenge for Europe is, is on the is on the eastern border. I mean, and Poland and Hungary and Sweden; those are the countries where you would expect there to be a big recruitment drive. I mean, the whole idea of conscripting of conscription or uh, increasing reserve forces. Look, if you wanted to increase recruitment, you shouldn't have alienated the white working class for the last thirty years. Mm. You shouldn't have been sending messages to the white working class that they are unwanted. We know that the Royal Air Force lost a court case recently. Uh, in which it was found to have discriminated against white men by calling them white useless pilots and preferring, you know, less qualified candidates to fly fighter jets. For heaven's sake, what are we talking about here? This targeting of women and ethnic minorities, who we know are far less likely to jo to join up, has had a demoralising effect on the people who actually used to make up the backbone and fill the ranks of the military. And it was often a great way to actually improve one's life chances was to go into the military yeah. one of my best friends in america you know a very poor chap from carolina because now a colonel in the american air force a career path offered to him yes. through the military and you know we have the most underachieving white working class boys we've had you know for a generation and, you know the military was one of the ways they could have improved their lot in life instead they see why on earth should they should they put their lives on the line to defend a nation that actually regards them as the root of all evil no, I couldn't put, couldn't agree more, actually, on, on that. But the thing is, do you think that, I mean, I think Rafe alluded to it there, Amy, but that this isn't really what it seems, that this is actually just a way of criticising the government for the way that they have cut back the armed forces? Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, the, the surreal thing about this was that this this um, general was talking, he was talking in rhetoric, which I largely agree with, but it sounded so antiquated when he was saying that people should fight for um, king and country you think nobody, there's such a cynicism and, and hatred of the country among the youth that, that they would never, you know, that wouldn't mm. even, they wouldn't even think in those lines. It was quite, it was quite remarkable. Um, and I mean, I think with the army, even, even, I think it was about five years ago, they put out an ad, for, ad, ad campaign trying to encourage young people to join the army. And of course, it was all in line with the fashions of the day. It was all diversity mm. and inclusion. They, they showed a, a video of, um, of a, of, a, of a British Muslim praying in a language mm. that wasn't mm. English before going to war and all of his supposedly non-Muslim um, British uh, colleagues were, were just watching him and waiting for him to pray before they went to battle. It was so farcical. Mm. Um, and, and there's been a kind of uh, an idea of kind of that the army is softer than it used to be, that, you know, you can be emotional and join the army or you can, um, uh, you know, you can, you can, uh, have have um, you know views that are different from what you expect and still join the army. So the, the the army has gone along like most of our institutions with with the fashions of the day, mm. and it's tried to appeal to young people through through these ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And of course, it's just been completely hollowed out. Mm. That nobody knows what the army is anymore, and there's such a cynicism of the country within young people. Why would they fight for it? You know, this 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 general was talking about, um, you know, our, our foreign adversaries. Well, there's adversaries in the country. Mm. It's not in some faraway country. Mm. There's a there's a soft war happening in the country, a cultural war, a war of information. Mm. That means young people. That the our idea that young people would fight some something that's foreign in another country. They wouldn't. They they don't. They don't. Um, they have no. They have no attachment to this country anymore. See, and yes, that's the see, issue. I mean, you got that. You mm. got those people, and that, those. That's the reason that they mm. wouldn't. As as I think you might always have had with young people, maybe at least in the post-war era. But then there are also a lot of people whose instinct would be to fight for the country, who 
would not this time, mm. because they feel, the reasons you just said, utterly betrayed, but also because of the nature of the war that it might well be. So are we talking, because there's a very serious issue here, we're, we're talking about the conscription side of it. He's said, if we have a war with Russia, right? So I immediately think this is going to come out of the Ukraine situation, right? And there will be a lot of people who would otherwise fight for their country who will not fight on those terms. Yeah, I mean, well, the argument, of course, is that it's a threat to, it's threat, it's a threat to Europe and therefore a threat to Britain. But, of course, you're quite right on this level. Now, look, my mother's Polish. No one is a harsh, harsher critic of Putin than I am. But I think a country with an economy smaller than the size of Italy, mm-hmm. um, which has found itself humiliated and mired in Ukraine, uh, would never dream of attacking a NATO state. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is rather overblown because, I mean, he simply, apart from tactical nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons, he doesn't have much in terms of resources that could muster up against the, the combined forces of, of NATO. So I think the idea that there's an, an inherent threat to the West is, is for the birds. As I said, it's, it's up to those countries neighboring Russia to, to stoke up their forces. But, you know, Amy gets on to a, to, to a more important point, I think, and that's we have an enemy at home that's far more of a serious threat to our way of life than, than, than Russia, loath as I am, you know, as abhorrent as I find the Russian state to be. And I think we actually, if we are going to increase our troop forces, it should be in order to uh, hopefully prevent any sort of escalation of the sorts of scenes we've seen in minute form every Saturday in London. Mm. But with the demographics that are changing, with the increased radicalization of this country, we're going to see more and more turmoil on the streets of London between different groups and between the majority indigenous population and, for example, Islamic extremists uh, in the years to come. And it would be good to know that actually that the army is of a sufficient force to tackle this, because when you see the size of some of these crowds and the potential mm-hmm. is there mm-hmm. for severe civil unrest, and you know the army isn't just there to fight wars abroad; it's also to keep the peace at home. Mm-hmm. I don't think people fully appreciate, actually, many people, quite what we're seeing happening, because this is every weekend now, isn't it, mm-hmm. Rose? Mm-hmm. And even on a smaller scale, in a neighbourhood scale at schools, at councils, at MPs' offices. This is a different kind of political attitude and culture happening Mm. here. It's putting pressure on through crowds and all the rest. But I mean, on the point of, uh, you know, who would fight and who wouldn't fight, uh, obviously the people that you were, and you were talking about young people Mm. there, uh, you were talking about what they call Generation Z or Z, which is the American pronunciation, of course. there was a report out, without wishing to be trivial, but there was a report out basically saying that generations said were pretty much feckless, wasn't it? Mm. It was saying that, it, that they did not want really to work. Mm. Or am I really making a, a crude summary of it there? Amy? No, there was an idea that they're much more likely to want to work from home or protest about having to go in to have an interview. Um, we've seen that sickness, and this report showed that sickness is up by 700,000. So it's gone from two, mi- yeah, from two million to two hundred to two million and seven hundred thousand in the last um, five years. So that's quite. It's almost a third right. in the last five years that it's gone up by, which yeah. is quite considerable. And a lot of those are are, are young people demanding to work from home or, or going off sick for mental health or, or, or physical health reasons or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot. I mean, this is this is sort of after, the aftermath of COVID. We, we need mm. to we need to make that point. I mean, it's it, to me, it's not surprising. I mean, COVID and, and what happened in terms of the lockdown was a complete. I mean, there was no sort of 
um, pro pro con analysis of, of COVID. It just sort of, it happened so suddenly and suddenly we went from all the things that we thought we knew in terms of the importance of going into work, being on time, productivity, networking, meeting with people, um, taking risks, being innovative, all of that suddenly was completely turned on its head. Mm. And COVID essentially said, none of that matters. The most important thing is your safety. So you don't need to go mm. into work. You don't need to be on time. You don't need to meet with people. You don't need to be in the public arena or square. Mm. You just need to make sure that you are safe. And 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 is we, we even saw some people getting paid even though they weren't working. Mm. And there was no consideration by our government about what this would do to the psyche of the nation, that this revealed something. It revealed actually none of these things that we thought we knew matter. And the idea that you could suddenly then go back to normality after two years of telling people that they don't need to work, they don't need to go in, was, to me, it was crazy. I mean, we, we, we never did a cost-benefits analysis. Um, and we are still living in the aftermath of that, yeah. where young people, a lot of young people who wanted to go into university, go into lectures, who were not at risk of this, this illness, it was mainly older people and people with underlying health conditions, were told that actually your safety is absolutely paramount. And it's no wonder that, that they are still living with that notion that actually they are putting their health and safety above everything. And if they don't feel like going into work or that work poses some risk to them, then they will advocate for working from home. Of course they will. But we, we allowed this to happen. What are we talking about, by the way, with Gen Z? Gen, Gen Z, Z, so 24 year olds and under. Um, 24 years and older. Do you think that they are entitled? These young people? I think the evidence speaks for itself. So what's remarkable about all of this is that people... We've got a couple watching, by the way, in the audience. People over 50 have half of the health issues of people under, under 30. Mm. Now, I mean, that should tell you everything. If you are under 30 and you have twice as many, twice as many days off as people over 50. And, you know, Amy's absolutely right. One of the principal reasons for this is, of course, the change of culture that's happening. I mean, I, I have a cousin who was on furlough for two years, and I don't know whether he's ever gone back to work. He just didn't want to go back. To, he was so used to that lifestyle. And, um, you know, you can, also, you can almost sort of understand why young people today would think that, you know, well, look, my, my wages are stagnating and they're not going anywhere. I've got no prospects mm. of improvement. I won't get on the property ladder. So what, where, where's the incentive for me to actually do anything? That's why you get this sort of, you know, mm. I'm going to just do the bare minimum of work. Why mm. should I bother to put anything quiet else out? Quitting, yeah, it? quiet yes, quitting. Now look, but it also may actually, you know, explain, it, it amounts to one day per week that's being lost for, um, for, the, for, the, for the young. Mm. Now, coincidentally, France is able to do as much productivity as we are on a four-day week. <laughs> And I sort of wonder whether this is tying mm. into our major productivity crisis that we have in this country, mm. you know, which has you know, led to our stagnating economy. Immigration hasn't helped improve productivity. This may be another factor contributing to that. Mm. Mm. It seems, uh, you know, that it's, it's this question of mental health. When, when you're talking about people being ill, mental health, uh, it's not good for my mental health. You hear this a lot, mm. my mental health. I've been dealing with issues to do with my mental health. It's almost seen like a, an outside thing, yes. uh, which is fundamentally different to how my generation saw it. You, know, you think if you have a tumor or something, then you can sort of say, this is, I've got to be careful. But to actually be able to say this was, I had to look after my mental health. How can you objectify your own mind in that way? Mm -hmm. But they apparently seem to, I mean, 
it's just pathologizing, isn't the, it, of ordinary things like feeling down. But they're, they're being taught this at bored. universities. I mean, most of them, humanities now teach, if you look at a text or a work of art, the idea is you talk about how it makes you feel yes. or, or your, your engagement with it or yeah. your, subject, your subjective response to it. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like universities now, first and foremost, are kind of a group therapy and then yes. second, secondary in education. That's the, the ethos that they're going then into the workplace with. Yeah. And HR supports this as well in, in workplaces, that mm. it's all about your well-being and your mental health. And of course, there are some people that are genuinely mentally unwell and they, they need help. But most of the time, it's this, this kind of, um, you know, our culture is now supporting a subjectivity around your emotions and your feelings. Mm. And, and most, you know, mental health issues are, are about subjective reporting that you just go to the GP and say that you're not feeling you're feeling mm -hmm. down and as Ray said I think what's happening alongside that is that you're seeing graduates go entering into the workplace and they're realizing that the system doesn't work for them that they're seeing people at, um, on social housing that are having to pay far less rent than they do mm -hmm. that they're having a struggle to get jobs that the cost of loon crisis but their woke studies course has told them that they can't speak out about those issues so all they they are left with there was no referendum on immigration there's been no protests about immigration i think people's you know um going off sick and, and, and rejecting kind of work or not wanting to go in into work is a kind of a, a soft protest that's happening that we don't realise. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a way of a way of communicating that the, the, the system's not working for me. Why would I put into the system when I can play the system as everybody else does? Because because what it's unfair. What what you know I I've put into this and I I'm a graduate and and there are people there are you know 50% of immigrants in in London are on social social housing. And they have to pay far less rent than than young mm. people do. So it makes sense that you would sort of think, well, why bother? Why why would I invest in this? I, I, the only thing is, I, I I don't agree with that actually. I, mean, I think mm. that I think I think that there are people who do feel that, but they're older people. But young people, they they love immigration. They they love divert. They've never known anything else. Mm. They they'd be horrified if you suggested that they were blaming their plight on them. I mean, you know, that's one thing they are solidly in favour of all these mm. things. Older people, I was very struck, because you know that there was this um, Telegraph report last week about how, <laughs> excuse me, certain sort of asylum, mm. you know, illegal migrants or whatever, were being allowed to work after a certain period. And this was, say, discovered to a, a freedom of information request. And I was sort of like, I just thought this is an ultimate betrayal. I mean, mm. in certain areas, they're actually going, and we don't even know who these people are. They're getting all of these, and they're ma ma being able to work. Um, but the thing is, is that there was a letter in the Telegraph from a man who said, why do I bother? I'm 55, I've got kids, I've got a wife who's a carer, mm. blah, blah. Why the hell do I bother? And you could, but the, but the younger people, would say, what's your problem? I mean, I agree with both of you, but I think, it, mm. I think it's the, the <coughs> capitalism has failed them. I think mm. that's the thing. They don't have the opportunities. They're the first generation who are going to be worse off than their parents' generation. So they don't, they don't see, they don't have pensions. There's nothing that's, that they've got which is actually better than their parents had. And, it's, and it leads to, I, I can understand the malaise that may come from that. But let's make no mistake. This is, we, we have produced, it's, it's, not, it's not their fault in many respects, it's the older generation's fault for having created such a, a modicoddled 
generation. Mm. And, and it actually goes before universities. Mm. It starts in the schools where they protect. Firstly, people only have sort of one child per family now. Mm. So these children are intensely spoiled by their parents. Mm. The parents are also far more protective over them because they don't have any spares if anything goes wrong with this one. And so they live lives of great privilege and they're also sheltered from any interaction with, with dangers in life or real trauma. Mm. That's why words become violence. That's why they can't handle any difficulties or challenges automatically become mental health issues. You know, I've said in the past that you know, S- Swedish children are you know, perhaps the most, one of the most privileged in the world, yet they have very high rates of depression announced. Why? Because in their school system, they're constantly asked, are you depressed on a scale of 1 to 10? If you keep asking children how depressed are you, mm-hmm. it's going to play on their mind. Mm-hmm. And suddenly if they have a bad day, oh yes, I'm a 7, Can, you know, confusing just having a bad day with having real depression. And we have, we have institutionalized this through HR departments and companies being, you know, bending over backwards to accommodate all of this rather than simply you know, firing or, or penalizing people when they, when they don't perform as they should do. Actually, it's, it's a, another side of that mm. is the, um, it's basically telling kids, you know, in effect, you are all Mozart. And if you're not Mozart, it's because someone's stopping you mm. unjustifiably. And that makes it, you know, because that's, that's what leads to the entire thing. You know, I, yeah. I am entitled to this. You know, I am, you know, this is my creativity. This is how I express myself and all this. Actually, what have you got to express? You know, mm. what does it it's worthwhile? I mean, interestingly, Jodie Foster, you know, she's not known as being a right wing headbanger, was complaining about Gen Z in an interview in the, mm. in the, in the Guardian. Actually, yes, I read the Guardian, uh, which basically where she's saying, um, you know, trying to get them to do anything, it's, it's just, it's very, very difficult. And it's, oh, I do not want to do this, I will not do that, I can't do that, blah, 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 this is not my job, etc. And that, that was someone pretty pampered, you know. So basically, the opposite of the greatest generation is what we're saying, isn't it? Well, I don't want to be too down on them, but um, they, still, they, they leave much to be desired so far. <laughs> but, um, I wanted to end actually because there was another uh, piece that struck me actually. It was in the Daily Mail, but it was about something that a lot of people actually write to us about, and that is about um, the state of ads these days. Now you might say, well, "What's that got to do with the price of milk?" But actually, it really has got something to do with the price of milk, hasn't it? Um, but the thing is, with ads, is they used to be a big part of our culture, actually, and um, and the piece in the Mail was talking about how inventive and how funny ads used to be in the 70s, 80s, maybe up to the 90s, early 90s. So without you know, any further apology, let's take a look at well, one of my favorites anyway, which was for Heineken. And this, I think, looking at the way it's, it's dressed, I would say is early 80s, maybe mid 80s. Okay, have a look at this. The water in Mallorca doesn't taste like what it ought to. The water in Mallorca don't taste like what it ought to. The water in Mallorca doesn't taste quite how it should. Mallorca. 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 Oi, Dale, any danger of some refreshment in here? Here you are. Get your laughing gear around there. Oh, golly. The water in Majorca don't taste like what it ought <laughs> Gosh. The water in Majorca don't taste like what it ought 
She's cracking. She's only cracking. You're absolutely wrong. Heineken refreshes the parts other beers cannot reach. Funny. I mean, mm. very funny. No? Mm. I mean, and I'm thinking also of Cinzana Bianca with Joan Collins, Lynn Rossiter, mm. and then of course the fame. The, apparently, the, the one that was actually uh, voted the best one of all was Cadbury Smash. Um, with the um, and then they smashed it all two bits. You know the mm. humans with the. This is great. It's absolute rubbish now, isn't it? Yes, yes. Advertising. I remember kind of 10 or 15 years ago, people were really worried about how seductive and um, sophisticated adverts were. They were they were worried that people were being kind of dragged into a kind of mindless consumerism and adverts were appealing to people's anxieties and desires around relationships and sex and that was only going to get worse. And now what we've seen, I, mean, nobody, I don't think anybody could, could have predicted this, that adverts have... Not only, not only now not attempting to be seductive or persuasive, they're actually actively alienating the consumer. Yeah. So we've seen adverts for, like, for example, Gillette razors um, advertising for men and essentially saying that all men are toxic. And then we've seen mm. the Bud Light fiasco promoting a transgender woman, which totally does not correlate to its, its consumer base at all. And mm. we've seen its share prices go down and so on. I don't think anybody could have seen that adverts would not only seek not to be seductive, but they would seek to chastise the, the customer. Yes, it yeah, is quite, yeah, yes. Nobody could have seen that happening. But also the and, general standard. And, and lecture them as well, yes, right? Yes, you know, yes, black yes. people make up 4% of the population. But if you see a white man during a commercial break, well, you know, please write and tell me because I haven't seen one. On the rare mm. chances you do see one, they're always emasculated or they're the fool in an advert on the, the, on the few occasions. Or yes. <laughs> they're ginger. Well, when, when you see them. Um, but yeah, you're, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the reason that they're not that, that great right now are because, of course, um, people aren't watching television as yeah. longer. Yeah. So, they, you know, so companies could invest millions of pounds because they knew they had millions of eyeballs watching. You've got a much smaller demographic now watching, mm. watching, and also people are recording things and just mm. fast-forwarding through the adverts or they're on their phone when the adverts are playing, so they're not actually engaged as much. But you're quite right, that golden era of ads, I absolutely adore them. Mm. The 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the early 2000s. You know, I moved to Canada for a few years, and I remember lamenting how terrible North American mm. ads were compared to over here. You know, just think of, of you know, and, and the, we had people like, you know, that Hovis going up the hill. Mm. That was Ridley Scott who Ridley Scott, <laughs> directed yeah, yeah, yeah. that. It's yeah. remarkable to think of, of that. And those Hamlet cigar ads, Benson, Benson and Hedges. I mean, they were just such brilliant pieces of work, a great commentary of the era and, and the humour that was involved there. I mean, there was a real snapshot of, of the British character in all of this wonderful, glorious eccentricity and diversity. And I lament the loss of that. I think mm. our culture is, is, a, is a lot poorer for it because it really gave us a window into the various aspects of British identity. Well, it sort of adds to the, you know, the joy and the gaiety of nations, didn't it? Mm. I mean, it was, a, it was a great byproduct of But I think it's because we no longer have any kind of shared media yes. or shared values. So people mm. used to speak of a sort of water cooler moment where you'd be at work mm. and you'd all discuss the latest advert or the episode of EastEnders. We don't have that anymore. We, we're all, we're all atomised. So we don't, there is no kind of um, uh, uh, shared reference points that we mm. can all sort of laugh about, which is such a shame. And adverts used used to play on that, but but we, we don't have that anymore. And, and um, we're all we're all listening to different things, so we have nothing that we can all um, unite around. And, and adverts often did that. 
despite being, you know, consumerist and, and so on, they did unite people that we could all have a good laugh. And, and But also, as you say, you know, uh, Ridley Scott, Hugh Hudson was another one, the guy who made Chariots of Fire. They all cut their teeth in advertising. Mm. And if you, I remember in the 1980s when you still had cigarette ads in cinemas. I think you had them on TV too, although they stopped on TV first. But in, uh, the silk cut ones were just surreal masterpieces. Mm. Remember? Boxes going through the desert with these lizards coming out and this amazing music. And, and no wonder the whole advertising, mean, Ogle, David Ogilvy, Morris Sargent, all these people, Charles Sargent, yes, they yeah. were big figures, weren't they? They were big. I mean, who do you know in advertising now? Yes, there was a real crossover with Charles Sarchi between advertisement and contemporary art. Yes. They almost converged at yes. one point. Yes. Um, but now it's, it's totally, um, most adverts are really banal. They're, they're just pushing a kind of, in fact, in some ways, they're more, in, people, people criticise the old adverts for playing on kind of people's fears and desires. But in some ways, the current adverts are more insidious because they are pushing a soft form of propaganda, mm. which people don't often realise that, mm. that they're, they're, they've got this weird kind of cynicism about the old forms of adverts. But actually, the current, the current adverts push kind of diversity and equity, inclusion ideas and fashions that people don't even realise they go along with it. It's not so much about the product anymore. It's about the propagandistic kind of cultural views that are being pushed. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine Yorkie Bar being able to get away with it's not for girls <laughs> on <laughs> its chocolate bars. Yeah, yeah. We had that as recently as 10, 10 years ago, yeah. I think. We, yeah. That's how quickly things have changed. Apparently, you know, the, you know people, reviewers may remember the, um, the dairy milk man, you know, um, only because milk you... Milk tray? Milk tray, sorry, yes, mm. the milk tray man, who was sort of a James Bond figure. Now, of course, they say, oh, he's a stalker, yeah. a sinister figure. Could you imagine? I mean, suddenly reading all the, the politics into that. But I happen to be on, you know, I'm on Facebook and I belong to one of these UK ad groups where you can, you know, I, on my feed every day I get ads from the 80s and 90s to watch from the 70s. And you're quite right. In the comments, everyone is united about mm. their memory. Oh, gosh, I remember that. And they're sticking there because of the catchy mm. songs. They stick in your mind, you know, the Ready Breck boy with the, 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 the border around him and so forth. And they were a really important part of those water cooler moments. They still mm. serve to unite mm. those of us who remember. But I remember, you know, I was in the, I went to see a movie in the, in the cinema um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, this is, a, again, part of the same thing you're talking about. Every ad, right, was, well, there was, they were all, in fact, no Asian people. They were mixed marriages or a, a black cast. It was a very English film, Saltburn. The whole audience was white, right? And you were looking at this thinking, well, who, just on a commercial level, who are you actually appealing to? But in fact, apparently, according to, they're not, they don't care about that. It's all about the brand. They want to put a certain brand appeal. So that means going for hyper-diversity to the point of unreality. Well, mm. it's also racist, though, right? Because, yes, as you say, yes. they, they omit the Asians. Yes. Asians are a far no, larger no, segment of the population. Yeah. Completely yeah. forgotten, for various reasons we can go into on that. But it just shows that they, they're trying to be sort of open and tolerant, and they're actually mm. discriminating against a far larger segment of the population than, than mm. Africans. Have you seen anything to sign off, you know, on a... On a no, have you seen any ads you think are inventive or funny recently? I don't have a TV, so I don't see any ads. No, but I mean, what about on YouTube and all of these? No, I never watched or always skip. No, I never yeah. see any ads. Skip today. ads, yeah, skip ads, skip ads. Well, I mean, tell us about your favourite ones. I mean, um, Cinzano Bianco, Joan Collins, fantastic. All of that. Love to hear about it. It could go on and on and on. 
Um, but anyway, in the meantime, a bit of a stroll down memory lane there, but what? so what? Thanks very much, Shane. Thanks for it. Um, uh, we shall see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.